Maria, it's loud enough? Yes. Okay, welcome everyone to another book review by Kathy Diamond. Take it away, Kathy. Okay, hello everyone. Good afternoon. Um, for those of you who are listening on the phone line, hello, voice only. And for those of you who are watching on Zoom, you can see me, I can't see you. So hello anyways uh, to all of you. So thank you very much, Maria. And thank you to the Eleanor London Kotzik Public Library for inviting me back again with my monthly short, well, it's not a book club meeting. I mean, it is, except that there's no interaction with, for you to listen to me talk about a book. So this month's selection is a book by Colson Whitehead called Harlem Shuffle. And Harlem Shuffle is his 10th book, Colson Whitehead's 10th book. He is a prolific writer who has become one of the most respected of contemporary American writers. So let me tell you a little bit about Colson Whitehead, um, and then I'll go into talking about the book itself. For those of you who've been attending over the years, we have, this is the third book by Colson Whitehead that we've talked about, or in this case that I'm talking about. We did the underground, his book, The Underground Railroad, and then more recently, we also did Nickel Boys, which I think was already in COVID era. And so it was on the phone line, if I remember correctly. Um, and now this is the third Colson Whitehead book that we're going to be looking at. So interestingly, um, he had, Colson Whitehead was born in New York City in November, 1969, which makes him, not such a young, young writer anymore. And I think you can see that, that there's definitely a maturity in his writing. He was born with the impressive name of Arch Colson Chip Whitehead. Quite impressive. Um, but he only calls him, he has only been going by the name Colson Whitehead. The Arch and the Chip parts of the name were dropped. He grew up in Manhattan not in Harlem. Um, he is one of four children. His parents were successful entrepreneurs. And I always think of this way when he, he says this, they say this about him, that his parents were successful entrepreneurs. Um, because one of the lines for those of you who read Harlem Shuffle is at some point when the characters are talking and one of them says, um, when, when the main character of the book, Ray, says, presents himself as an entrepreneur, and the other one of the, uh, the more criminal characters who he who he's surrounds himself with or say, says to him, yeah, yeah, what's an entrepreneur? What's the difference between you and me? It's just, or whatever you call yourself an entrepreneur, it's just that you pay taxes and some of us don't pay taxes. Anyways, Colson Whitehead grew up um, financially in, in not in, in, in difficult circumstances. His parents owned an executive recruiting firm and he grew up in Manhattan. He attended the elite prep Trinity School in Manhattan and graduated from Harvard University in 1991. So he has quite the academic credentials behind him. 
Early in his career, he lived in Brooklyn. Today, he lives in Manhattan, and he also owns a home in Sag Harbor in the Hamptons on Long Island. His wife is a literary agent, and they have two children. After leaving college, Mr. Whitehead wrote for The Village Voice. And while he was working at this job, writing for The Village Voice, he began drafting his first novels. He has since produced 10 book-length works, eight novels, and two books of nonfiction, two works of nonfiction, including a meditation on life in Manhattan in the style of E.B. White, the beloved writer E.B. White's famous essay, which was called Here is New York. So New York is very much a part of his, of his writing, of his writing over the years. His first novel was called The Intuitionist, was published in 1999, then followed by a book in 2001 called John Henry Days, then The Colossus of New York, um, a couple of other books include more novels, and one which was entitled Sag Harbor, which has a bit of autobiography about it, um, into, and as I said, several other ones, but you, we will probably be most familiar with 2016, his 2016 book, The Underground Railroad, which became a bestseller, which was critically acclaimed, which earned him a National Book Award for fiction. And then was, and I believe has just been made into a film. Um, and then, and that was followed by 2019's novel, The Nickel Boys, which I'm sure many of you have read and remember, um, which was based on fiction, but based on a, a reform school that existed in Florida that was not a very nice place. And there, and uh, he wrote about, he fictionalized a story about two boys who were in the place, which, which was based on, as I said, a real place, but he fictionalized it in his book, The Nickel Boys. And that novel also earned him great critical acclaim as well as prizes. Back when John Updike, novelist John Updike, reviewed Mr. Whitehead's The Intuitionist, his first novel in The New Yorker back in 1999, he called Colson Whitehead ambitious, scintillating, and strikingly original, was how he referred to Colson Whitehead's first book, adding, this young African-American writer is one to watch. This 31-year-old at the time, Harvard graduate with the vivid name of Colson Whitehead. And turns out that Mr. Updike was right in his prediction that Colson Whitehead has been one to watch and has produced some very fine writing. His nonfiction essays and reviews have appeared in numerous publications, including the New York Times, The New Yorker, Granta, and Harper's. He also wrote, interestingly, a nonfiction account of the 2011 World Series of Poker. This is nonfiction, which he called The Noble Hustle Poker, Beef Jerky, and death. 
and it was published in, by Doubleday in 2014. He has taught at print as well as writing. He's also taught. He has taught at Princeton University, New York University, um, the University of Houston, Columbia, Brooklyn College, Hunter College, Wesleyan, and he's been a writer in residence at Vassar University, the University of Richmond, and the U University of Wyoming. So he's had quite the successful career. In the spring of 2015, he joined the New York Times Magazine to write a column on language. And anybody who's read his books, I'm hoping that th those of you listening, some of you have read previous ones, perhaps this one as well, that he is wonderful with language. He has such a way, especially to me, this in, in Harlem Shuffle, what he does with language, as well as he has a very good sense of humor that comes out in this book, is really something. His 2016 novel, The Underground Railroad, was a selection of Oprah's Book Club, which is always something very good for an author, um, chosen by then President Barack Obama as one of his five books on his reading list, awarded uh, different medals for excellence in fiction. Um, and in 2017, he won a Pulitzer Prize for fiction with The Underground Railroad. The Nickel Boys, as I said, was published afterwards in July of 2019, um, and that was inspired by the real life story of the Dozier School for Boys in Florida. Uh, and for that, he also won a Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 2020. So he is a two time winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, which is no small thing, accomplishment for an author. And so now this is his eighth novel. And interestingly, Mr. Whitehead has said that after he wrote The Underground Railroad, he, he, was, he had already been working on a crime novel, which he set in Harlem in the 1960s. But then he heard about the, um, the Dozier School for Boys in Florida because there was a large, a journalist came across the story and there was an expose written and Mr. Whitehead became interested in that and decided to leave the beginnings of this crime novel that he was going to set in Harlem in the 1960s, which is Harlem Shuffle that we're talking about today, and he wrote Nickel Boys. So Nickel Boys came, he wrote, he was published, and then he went on to finish this novel. So that's the that's a bit of background about Mr. Whitehead um, and about his previous works. So Harlem Shuffle, and I, I looked up because Harlem Shuffle, apparently it gets its, well, it's, it's a great title because it's a play on words in, in, different, in different senses, but originally the Harlem Shuffle was a dance step, was a very popular dance step um, and that became known as the Harlem Shuffle. So that's one meaning of the word and the other ones, you know, those of you who read the book, it's the different characters and how they're shuffling through their lives or, you know, maybe also um, in, uh, it could be in reference to card games, to poker games, which appear a few times in the story and, you know, the shuffling of the deck. And anyways, it can have all kinds of meaning, but the book is called the Harlem Shuffle. For some for, for some African-American writers, the neighborhood of Harlem represents both a challenge, a literary challenge, and the opportunity to showcase their talents. Because 
over the history of American literature, which in in the in, in Western literature altogether, American literature is a pretty new addition to the game. But writing about Harlem has been known to launch literary careers. If the writer is good enough to capture, properly capture something of the vibrancy and rich history, the majesty and the poverty, the sounds, the smell, and the feel of the place, which in the early, in the early 20th century grew into the capital of Black America with the nation's largest concentration of African Americans. Then in the 1920s, the birth of the Harlem, what became known as the Harlem Renaissance, which was an explosive movement of literature, art, and music. That was the Harlem Renaissance in the 20s. Then there were continuing tough economic times. Of course, then there was the depression in the 30s and crime became, um, unfortunately became a large part of life in Harlem. And yet the quiet majority, one always has to remember, of the citizens, as in most neighborhoods, who work hard in the daytime and return to their families in the evening. But how was one to evoke in one of the authors who wrote about Harlem in its early years, this hodgepodge of churches, bars, beauty parlors, and harsh orange, red, neon signs? And for those of you who can see me who are looking on Zoom, I don't know those of you who read the book, who had the book, but the cover is, is something that evokes this sense of bright colors. It's, it's red and yellow and green with black writing. And it's a very appropriate and very intense cover. And when I was when I was when I found the words of this author, a woman by the name of Anne Petrie, and she says this orange red and red neon signs, it made me think that you know somebody chose this cover with, with attention to detail. This is a lush urban world, Harlem, which is as varied, continues this other writer, as varied and as full of ambivalence as Manhattan itself. But how to write about this properly, evocatively? Many writers in the history of American, on the American literary scene have taken up the challenge. Um, from a Jamaican-born writer called Claude McKay, who published the novel Home to Harlem back in 1928. And there were others, um, and including, if anyone is familiar with the writer Ralph Ellison, who set part of his groundbreaking 1952 novel, Invisible Man, which is considered to be one of the great American novels, part of his story was set in Harlem as well. And other writers, including James Baldwin, who most people are familiar with, even if you haven't read him, but at least know the name, who grew up in Harlem. And for all the time that Baldwin spent abroad, in some ways he never left. And he wrote often about his birthplace in his essays, such as Notes of a Native Son, and in his first novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain. And there are other works by contemporary writers who, 
who write about Harlem as well. So now comes Colson Whitehead's new novel, Harlem Shuffle, which could, as the Wall Street Journal pointed out, could also be called, or might have been called, Colson Comes to Harlem. No, he never would have named his book that, but you could, you could, if you're thinking about it, you could think of it like that. Because this book brings together Mr. Colson, this very talented author, his singular gifts of using language and of telling stories to this place, to Harlem. Except in this novel, for the first time, he turns to the crime genre. It's as if he's decided he's going to write a, not as if, he decide, he's writing a crime novel. And this is what makes Mr. Whitehead such an interesting um, and such a good writer, is that he can write about so many different subjects. And it's kind of an interesting point in his career that he's doing this. So remember, he was born in New York City. He is a New York writer, and he built his reputation with novels, such as from, the, from his first novel, The Intuitionist, um, and his second one, this John Henry Days, works that did center on Black characters, but didn't put character development nor the Blackness of the characters at center stage. In fact, the subject of his earlier novels lay with his fascination, the author's fascination, with arcane subjects, such as elevators, in the case of his first novel, The Intuitionist, or philosophical concerns, the unknowability of other people and truth, which comes up a little bit in Harlem Shuffle as well, but that was the theme of his second book. And perhaps most of all language. So again, it's not for coincidentally that he has, has this column on language in the New York Times Magazine, but this is how he has been casting a spell, so to speak, over his readers for years with his use of language. He has wildly, anybody who's read it, and especially, I think he excelled at this in Harlem Shuffle, with his wildly inventive and often startlingly funny descriptions. In a couple of his other books, race came closer to the fore, the forefront of his books, then receded a bit in other ones, such as his book, Sag Harbor, and then returned once again more forcefully than ever with the Underground Railroad in 2016 and Nickel Boys in 2019, because the Underground Railroad, if you will remember, was the story, which was kind of a like, fic, fic, well, fiction and, and magical realism um, version of a, the, the main character is a young girl who escapes life of slavery and who tries and makes herself her, her way up north using the Underground Railroad. And Nickel Boys, of course, uh, this where this reformatory school for boys that was um, had had parts for black boys and parts for white boys in this reform school, but it really also was a book about race. And in those last two novels, Mr. Whitehead, who was already a more mature writer at the time, he didn't use so much of his smart guy language technique that he did in his earlier books. 
But in its place came something else. It seemed to be a new or a more mature emotional depth and resonance to his work, which also one can say comes with age and comes with maturing. And this was noticed by, and, and um, rewarded, one can say, by the literary community. He was bestowed twice the Pulitzer Prize on both those books, The Underground Railroad and The Nickel Boys, and a National Book Award on The Underground Railroad as well. And so in his new novel, In Harlem Shuffle, which is a very enjoyable book, I mean, it's really, really fun to read for those of you who haven't read it, his various powers, you could say, his characterization, his um, emotional and philosophical development and questions, as well, of course, as his play with language and his wicked sense of humor are all woven together in Harlem Shuffle. Race, of course, is still there, and it's very, very much part of the story, but in a more subtle, perhaps, way, one could say. And we are made to care about and to root for the main character. So who is the main character of this story? He is, when we first meet him, he's a young man, the hero of the novel's three parts. The book is divided into three parts, set respectively in the years 1959, 1961 and 1964. And he calls the three sections. So part one, 1959, is called The Truck. Part two, 1961, two years later, is called Dorvay, D-O-R-V-A-Y, which I didn't know what that was. Is this a place name? Is it a person? What is it? I come back to that in a moment. And part three, it takes place in 1964, and it's called Cool It Baby. So these are the titles of his section. So it's like, and you open up the book, the first section is called The Truck, 1959, and there's a quote, and the quote will tell you a lot about the main character of the book, and thus what you're going to be reading about. So what's this, this little quote at the at the epigraph, one could say, at the beginning of this section that's called The Truck, 1959. So set yourself back into Harlem, 1959. Carney is the name of the main character, Ray Carney. Carney was only slightly bent when it came to being crooked. So we're not talking of, so you don't know what this is when you, when you read this. Are you thinking that, you know, is he crooked? Does he have a spinal deformity? And it turns out, no, that's not what the author is referring to. So just to read you just a couple of sentences so you get a feel for Mr. For Mr. Whitehead's language here. Opening uh, chapter of the opening first part of the book. His cousin Freddie brought him on the heist one hot night in early June. And just by the way, much of the book takes place in the summer, even like the different years takes place in the summer. And he said in an interview, I read a few interviews with Mr. Whitehead, and the author uh, and the interviewer is saying to him, the interview takes place when it's very hot in New York and says, 
oh, you know, your book is set, Harlem Shuffle is set in the summer and there it's heat. And if anybody's been in New York City in the heat, you know how sweltering it is. The pavements are steaming and it's just very unpleasant. And remember too, that in 1959, most people did not have air conditioning. So it was very hot. So he said, I decided when I wanted to write this crime novel that I had to set it in the summer because the, I wanted most of my book to take place in the summer because the heat in the city is something that makes people a little crazy, perhaps makes people do things that if the weather was cooler, um, they wouldn't do. So his cousin Freddie brought him on the heist one hot night in early June. Ray Carney was having one of his runaround days, uptown, downtown, zipping across the city, keeping the machine humming. First up was Radio Row to unload the final three consoles, two RCAs and a Magnavox, and pick up the TV he left. He'd given up on the radios, hadn't sold one in a year and a half, no matter how much he marked them down and begged. Now they took up space in the basement that he needed for the new recliners coming in next week and whatever he picked up from the dead lady's apartment that afternoon. The radios were top of the line three years ago. Now padded blankets hid their slick mahogany cabinets fastened by leather scraps to the truck bed. The pickup bounced in the unholy rut of the West Side Highway. So this, this, is, our, this is Ray Carney, the owner, the driver of this pickup truck, and it turns out he's the owner of a furniture store in Harlem on 125th Street in Harlem. He's an aspiring um, entrepreneur. He's a young businessman. He's managed to put him himself through school. He has a degree in business from, from Queens College, which is you know, no small thing from a boy from Harlem, especially one whose mother died when he was young and whose father's career was being a criminal. So um, anyways, the description is wonderful. And we get to know that, that, uh, Ray, that Ray Carney has this business, that he's just opened up the store, that this store had been a furniture store previous owner and the owner previous to that. And he's taken over the store and he's trying, he's in, in his early 30s, he's married, he has one child and his wife is expecting the second one. And he's, you know, and he's, he's a... Um, a very enterprising young man and but we also know that Carney was only slightly bent when it came to being crooked so what is this going to tell us so this is one of the themes of the book is that there's a fine line at least in the world that Mr. Whitehead describes in this book there's a fine line with somebody trying to be straight and honest and somebody extremely crooked and uh, not a fine line, but in between are all kinds of gradations. And it's not so easy to stay completely straight. And by the end of the book, Colson Whitehead has asked all kinds of questions, not only about whether one accepts stolen goods into one's store, whether one sells these used goods that happen to fall off a truck and you just don't ask questions of the provenance of the goods that you are selling. Is that any more criminal than what the very rich white folk are doing when they're assigning building permits to build the huge skyscrapers 
down in the financial district of Manhattan. So there are very big questions that are addressed in the book as well. So Ray Carney is the main character of the book, and he's the hero of the novels, all three parts of the novel. As I said, 1959, 1961, and 1964, points in time that together reveal the gradual changes that are taking place in Harlem, in New York City, and in the protagonist, in the main character himself. So as I said, Carney is the owner of a furniture store on 125th Street, which is Harlem's main drag. He is 30-ish when we meet him. As I said, he's happily married with his young child and another on the way, which is stable family life, something that he did not have. It seems we never hear anything about a sibling, that he was an only child. As I said, his mother dies when he's young. His father was a, was a um, criminal. That's how he made his living and thought nothing of leaving his young son for long periods at a time. Um, and during those periods, young Ray would go and live with his aunt, which is how he comes to be associated. Well, he has a cousin, Freddie, and the two of them are like brothers because young Ray often was living with his aunt and his cousin when his father just left him. But, but so it's impressive that he got through school, that he did very well, that he even went to college and got this business degree and that he's, he's become a law-abiding, upstanding entrepreneur. Well, okay, so only slightly better. Logically speaking, Carney should not have turned out so well with no mother from when he was a young age, father is a petty criminal, leaving Carney to mainly raise himself in difficult circumstances. And he did a very credible job. The one thing his father did do, it turns out for him, if not on purpose, was after the elder Carney, Carney Pear, was shot to death by the police, Carney, young Carney, found hidden in his old man's pickup truck, and that's why you realize that the first section of the book is called the truck, and Carney has an attachment to, young Carney has an attachment to this truck, and even at the very end of the book, as long as he can, he's still driving this old pickup truck that was his father's. In this truck, Carney finds tens of thousands of dollars that his father had hidden away in his truck, because of course there was all this illegal, illicit activity, which in the end caused Carney's father to be shot. But anyways, the money was there. And Ray, the son, used this money to set up his store. And this is there, sounds very impressive, which is impressive to most people, except for, as we described, Ray Carney's very snooty, status-conscious in-laws. So Carney is married to lovely Elizabeth, who's smart and beautiful and feisty, and he loves her. Um, and it's a very good marriage that they have, as described, and he, he never you know, he does cheat on her, and he loves his children, and that part of his life is, is very important to him. But his in-laws look down upon him because they live in that small area, and these names are great, of Harlem. There was one or two blocks with very nice houses. And it was called, his name is great, Strivers Row, as in to strive for something. So his in-laws lived there, his wife grew up there, and Carney did not. He came from the tenements and the slums and the poverty. So the fact that he's 
you know, he's, he's educated himself and he's opened this business does not really impress his in-laws because they consider themselves to be above him. In telling the his character Ray Carney's story, um, Mr. Whitehead uses a lot of humor and jokes, but he realizes, it's as if he realizes that joking aside, joking is good and the humor is good, but this won't carry the book alone. He, so he, even though he does fill the book with a lot of humor and a lot of wit, like he seems unable to resist doing that, there is a lot more to this crime story. So as he tells us about his main character, he had the store then when he's talking about Ray's store, because the store is very important. This is Ray's, what's going to raise him up above maybe the criminality that his father has bequeathed him as a profession. Will it or won't it? And that's the question of the book. You know, there's all these, these heist scenes and all these chase scenes and all this, you know, who's going to get who and is he going to survive in the end? Because, but at the beginning, Ray thinks that he is above all of this. He is going to remain kosher, to use an expression, um, and, he, and he's not going to do crooked things, except maybe just a little bit if some merchandise comes his way and he's, you know, not quite sure where it comes from, doesn't matter. Um, so that's how it begins. But so how, so how does Mr. Whitehead describe his main character? Ray Carney had the store then. Paint still fresh. No one thought he would make a go of it except his wife, Elizabeth. At the end of the day, when she propped him up and told him he could do it, he was puzzled. He didn't understand this. He, he was puzzled by the alien things she offered him. Kindness and faith. Faith in him. He didn't know what to do with this. Nobody had ever had faith growing up. He hadn't, he hadn't had this. So this is how he this is how the author introduces the character. And similar to James Baldwin, the character of Ray Carney leaves the circumstances of his past behind, or so he thinks, the crookedness of his father, only to find it's not so easy. They're still part of him. In his early days as the store owner, he struggles, you know, in the first scenes of the book where he, he looks, did he sell anything? Is he, how is he going to be able to pay the rent on the store this month? And he's rearranging the sofas and he's marking down the prices on the TV consoles and he's moving the recliners and he's putting his used furniture section more visibly because he notices that a lot of his walking customers can't afford the new fancier stuff, but they'll buy the used stuff. And he really struggles. He keeps himself and his family afloat by taking a more or less passive part in the crookedness that makes the world of Harlem go round. In Carney's case, as I said, he takes in merchandise. He doesn't ask too many questions about how the gently used furniture and other pre-owned items come his way. Many of them via his cousin, this Freddie, the son of his aunt Millie, the one, the place that he's had to go to whenever his father abandoned him as a kid. And cousin and friend Freddie, they become very, very close. And it's Freddie who gets himself, who gets him into a lot of trouble because Freddie 
it seems, can't stay away from trouble. He just can't. And when they were boys, Freddie, cousin Freddie, would often rope Ray into scrapes, always sincerely apologetic when both were about to be punished. And yet, Freddie was unable to stay out of trouble for very long afterward. And that relationship dynamic carries over into adulthood. And it's very much part of the book. When the dangers go well behind just the spanking and I said, get sent to your room. And the plots, the different plots of Harlem Shuffle mostly turn on situations that our protagonist, our hero, Ray Carney, fully grasps at the same time as he realizes that he's smack in the middle of them. So he knows what he's what he's in the middle of, and yet he just can't seem, it, it just becomes too much part of how his life is developing. And yet, in the and so that's the opening part of the book. In the second section of the book, which was called Dorvey, someone, and this is where things shift, someone does Carney wrong. Somebody does an injustice to him. Those of you who read the book will, will know what happens. And our protagonist discovers that as much as he's tried to distance himself from his father and his father's criminal life and criminal career, he discovers that his father's vengeful streak has been passed down to him. It's in his blood, it's in his makeup, and he can't seem to get over it. And that's the middle part of the book, more adventures, more troubles, and Carney, our, our let's say more idealistic hero at the beginning of the book, who's going to try and stay as straight as he can in the very crooked world of Harlem Shuffle, by the middle part section of the book realizes when somebody wrongs him, how angry he is and how he can only think of getting vengeance. And it's this getting vengeance that is going to drive more of the plot and is going to cause him trouble. So the, the second section of the book, as I said, has this very interesting title, which I didn't know what it meant, Dorvay, D-O-R-V-A-Y, which turns out is the name of something real. It's a, a, a method or a, a technique that was developed, I don't know, years ago, in which people would sleep, um, go to sleep at the beginning of the night, sleep for several hours, then wake up and have a wakeful period in the middle of the night for several hours, and then go back to sleep again. And during that wakeful period, the person could, it's, it was a, a method, or as one of the characters says, this was before, and, and this is um, a university professor, one of um, Art Car Ray Carney's um, college professors, who comes from some unnamed country in middle Europe, who tells him, describes this to his students and says, many great men did this. And of course, before Ralph, uh, Ralph Ellison, before Edison invented the light bulb, 
when it got dark outside, people had to go to sleep. So you went to sleep when it became dark, but then you woke up at some point in the middle of the night and you had hours to do something, whether it was to write or philosophize or to dream. In this case, it's when people, in this case, our main character devises all his ways of getting back at this person who did him wrong. It's his hours of vengeance. It's when he plots and plans and schemes and does his illicit affairs, goes out also in these shadowy hours of the middle of the night, then comes home, finishes his night's sleep, gets up in the morning refreshed, and goes to his store and pretends to be a regular businessman. So it's this shadow world that, as I said, this technique apparently exists, because I looked it up, um, that Whitehead writes about in the middle section of the book. And this is what changes Carney when he dis when he realizes that he has his father's streak of, of vengeance, that he inherited this, that it's almost that there's nothing he can do. This is his fate to be who he is. And so this is, as I said, going to drive the plot. In all of his, the adventures that take place to our main character in the book, young, young, Carney Jr. has an unlikely accidental ally, one of the most vivid characters in the book, an old associate of Carney's father who goes by the name of Pepper. Remember, most of the characters in this book, in this book, or many of them are criminals with all kinds of interesting names. And what Mr. Whitehead, the author, manages to pull off is to make us readers like this Pepper, this old associate of Carney, this criminal, career criminal. He's, he's a, a silent, a big guy, a misanthrope. He does not like people. Um, although part of the trick, of course, is that Pepper comes to the rescue, comes to Carney's rescue, even if not for the most selfless of reasons. And it's this character of Pepper who comes into the story. He's, he's there throughout the story, but in the last section, he becomes more important. This mountain of a man who had taken, or who looks like he, who had looked like he came from the country, this Pepper, who the former associate of Carney's late father, who had a country bumpkin who had taken a wrong turn, ended up in the city and stayed. A foreign body, as he is described, who had adapted to its new home. So if you, you have this, these two worlds, maybe Harlem Shuffle, one way of it, you have young Ray Carney's nice family life, his, his, his wife and his two children, and his legitimate business, the furniture store that he's built up, one of the, one of the successful businesses by the end of the book on 125th Street, the main street in Harlem, so this nice family and his legitimate business are the outward manifestation of one side of Carney's nature. But the other side of it takes the form of Pepper, his father's former business associate, who's now come back into the picture and becomes, becomes Carney Jr.'s associate as well. Which brings us to the, I guess you could call it philosophical underlayer or subtext of the book, um, which is thinking how, how the main character has to try and figure out 
who is his true self? And he thinks about it a lot during the book. At the beginning, as I said, you know, that, that epigraph at the beginning of the first section describes Carney as only slightly bent when it came to being crooked. And by the last section, the, um, the one that takes place in 1963, after there have been riots in Harlem and things are really starting to change, you wonder if he's only slightly bent. Is he really only slightly bent? And are, is pretty much everybody a bit slightly bent? Or is he more than slightly bent? And is, is this just what he is developing into? And so in the third section, which is called, sorry, 19, takes place in 1964, and it's called Cool It, Baby. And what's the epigraph there? These are quotes from the, the section, the coming chapters of the book. So this one reads, maybe don't play the same number all the time. Play something else. See what happens. Maybe you've been playing the wrong thing this whole time. Again, kind of reference to what? The song, the card game, your game in life. What's your game? The Harlem Shuffle. So who is Ray Carney? By the, by, is he the young man raised in hard circumstances who has managed to go straight, the family man who helps supply other young families with that most foundational aspects of their lives, furniture, the furniture that they rely on for comfort in their precious hours at home. The not strictly legal activities help with the rest. That's all. And so that's one justification in Carney's mind. And so, as he says, everyone had secret corners and alleys that no one else saw. And the book is told not in first person, in third person narrative voice, like we're told Carney and he, it's not the I, but it's a very close third person. So even if it's third person, you still feel very much that you're inside as much as one can be, Mr. Whitehead is trying to tell us, to somebody in somebody else's head. But everyone had secret corners and alleys that no one else saw, Ray tells us. But what mattered were your major streets and boulevards, the stuff that showed up on other people's maps of you. And isn't that a clever way of saying, you can't know anybody else. Who knows what's going on in anybody else's mind? It's hard enough for us to know what's going on in our own minds, but you think you know other people, you really never know other people, he's trying to say. So, okay, everyone has their secrets and the stuff that goes on inside of them. But what's important are your major streets. The, this, the face, then the okay, facade, the face, whatever you show the world. This is what our narrator, what, what Carney shows us. The stuff that shows up on other people's maps of you. Left unsaid is that the likable Carney, and he remains likable throughout the whole story, is a stand-in for the rest of us who adjust our view of ourselves, don't we all, to make it through the day. And this in the book becomes doubly difficult when those selves have to adapt and adjust to changing circumstances. 
And this change is part of the backdrop of Harlem Shuffle too. As the passing years, and it's only 59 to 64, so it's not a huge time span, but very important years. And, and Mr. Whitehead had said he chose, he particularly chose those years because they were very important years in the development of New York City and in the development of Harlem. What happened in those years? Fears of the Cold War, protests and rioting, the heroin epidemic, which he refers to and he has his characters on the needle and the destruction that that does to them. The, and the ever-shifting, growing physical landscape of New York City. And that's so much always part of this book, not only Harlem, but the rest of the city. And by the end, by the, the third section, it's not Harlem so much. I mean, Harlem is there, but it's the other part of the development of the city that, that Whitehead writes about. Walking through downtown toward the end of the novel, Carney sees the beginnings of what will be the World Trade Center. And this is like kind of eerie. And it's just been 20 years since the terrorist attack on the World Trade Center, right? But it's still, so when he's writing in 64, it's just going to be the beginning. Just the, the World Trade Center is just being conceived and built, which inevitably, and I'm sure purposely, leads the readers, our thoughts to 9-11, and to other of New York's shared disasters. So it's change he writes about, and in and interestingly, um, one one reviewer pointed out that in 1925, James Weldon Johnson asked, "Are the Negroes going to be able to hold Harlem when they do leave?" This choice bit of Manhattan Island, he answered, their homes, their churches, their investments, and their businesses, it will be because the land has become so valuable that they can no longer afford to live on it. And the an author, another author remarked that he went into a restaurant in Harlem a couple of years ago, and he sat down and he was dining with two acquaintances, a nice restaurant on 126th Street in Harlem, and he looked around and he realized that they were the only Black people in the place, because Harlem has become so gentrified that was once home to the largest um, concentration of African Americans in, in America, um, and definitely in New York City, is no longer that way because the neighborhood has changed so much. So it's about change as well. And just to, um, just to read you, to finish up, uh, just a couple of bits from the end of the book, the way he's describing. So Carney is walking down to the, to the bottom of Manhattan now. Remember, he's up on 125th, at, which is where Harlem is top of Manhattan, and he's walking down. Charney, Carney arrived at Barclay and Greenwich streets. At the intersection, a checker cab clipped a green sedan and the drivers leapt out onto the street to bully each other. Carney watched this scene. Then he made his way to the tiny window in the plywood surrounding the building site. 
And there's there was the whole escapade and and what happens in the story. I won't go into details with with the Van Wyck family, which is the correct way to pronounce it. I learned Van W Y C K, which I always thought was Van Wyck, but no, you know, as in the Van Wyck Expressway, but it's the Van Wyck. So they are a huge um, family and investment and real estate development firm in New York have been for a couple of centuries and they're putting up this new building and Carney goes down to see it. Remember, this is 1964 and he's going to look through, remember, like there are windows in the plywood surrounding the construction site and he goes to look and he looks in this, in this little window and he looks down and what does he see? A hole that went four stories deep deeper than he had ever seen looking into down into these construction sites in his life underground parking or is that how far down you have to go to get these big skyscrapers up these days a simple fact of physics all that dirt and rock were already accounted for read those articles about the city's battery park scheme and you know it'll take a million tons of landfill to expand the footprint of the island that much they had to dig down ever deeper to build ever higher then make more island to fit the other stuff they wanted to put up it was a racket the whole thing and then he describes other buildings and then he says this time next year, this parcel of land would be the home of a 56 floor office building, the most ambitious of the Van White Corporation to date, open for business well before the World Trade Center was completed. This is another project here, and he's had this, the Van White family has been part of this book. Um, and he says here, nice to get in early, thinks Carney, you don't have to be first, you merely have to have an eye for what's coming down the road. And so, and then he goes on with more description and the book ends as Carney is giving the upcoming, it's not gonna, the World Trade Center is not built yet, but it's an idea. And he gave the World Trade Center site one last look. The next time he was going to be down here, he knew it would be something totally different. That's how it worked. And then his last paragraph is finally, Carney is able, he's moved his family to, he's moved his family into an apartment on Riverside Drive, nicer than the one it is when we first meet him. But what is he going to do? He's going to look at a house on Strivers Row, that once elegant, well, at the time, still elegant neighborhood in Harlem that his in-laws lived in that he had never been able to afford. But now the striving was what he was going to be doing, crookedly or otherwise. So for 20 years, Mr. Whitehead has delivered his readers novels notable for cultural satire, racial allegory, genre expansion, and quirkiness. And with Harlem Shuffle, he does not disappoint. A book that I would highly recommend to anybody looking for a very good read, anyone who knows what a good writer Colson Whitehead is. 
read it. Thank you so much. Any questions? I'd be happy to answer them. If you have any questions, please put them in the chat or in the Q&A. Thank you for listening, everyone, just while we're waiting for questions and hope to see you next month, probably same format on Zoom. Yep, uh, June the 13th, Monday, June 13th. Monday, June 13th, okay. I don't see any questions coming up. Um, I'll ask, do you think that this was his most successful novel thus far, of the ones we've reviewed? Which do you think? They were all different. You know, they were so different. Um, I think I enjoyed this one the most. I had most fun with it. Did you read it, Maria? I have not. That's why I'm asking for the, the feedback. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> okay. Yes, I'm, I'm curious, those of you who read his other novels, anybody listening who would want to share, because they're so different. The topics are so different. The Underground Railroad, you know, that story of slavery. And then it was, as I said, you know, sometimes you didn't know what was, was this meant to be real? Was this meant to be made up? Because this didn't really make any sense. And it was meant to be magical, kind of in the Harry Potter way. And then there was the Nickel Boys, which was, which was really very disturbing and based on that on that, the findings of that um, reform, reformatory school in Florida, where many uncovered graves, I mean, unmarked graves were uncovered and that started the whole um, investigation into that, which he wrote about. And now this is like, it's fun. I mean, it's fun. Oh, and apparently he's working on a sequel, which he's never done before because he switches genres all the time and writes about such varied topics and is able to do so, which is really something. Um, but he said that he wants to see what he, the author, the creator of the character, wants to see what Ray Carney is going to be up to in his later years. So that's something to look forward to for those of us who enjoyed Harlem Shuffle. Love that. I don't see any questions, so I think that's it for today. Thank you so much, Kathy, and we'll see you again in June. Thank you. Bye. Good afternoon. Bye, everyone. Thank you Bye. for tuning in. Bye.